I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 26, which uh, is the obvious note that we are stepping out of our series through John's Gospel this morning and kind of dropping into this story toward the end of Matthew's Gospel to help us think about this thing that we've just done, rearranging our Sunday morning rhythm and adding a class hour between the first and second services so that we can spend even more time together as a church family on Sunday mornings. Now, time is, of course, a, a very precious commodity. Uh, we all know that we've only got so many hours in a day, and if we're honest, uh, Sunday morning is pretty prime real estate for that time. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously more crowded than it used to be with, you know, kids' school or, or, I guess, more sports activities kind of invading what was once sacred space. A lot more businesses are open on Sundays than maybe 30 or 40 years ago. But for the most part, uh, most of us have Sundays off or at least can rearrange our work schedule so that we can regularly take Sundays off. And so how we spend these precious few hours on a Sunday morning, that's no small thing. That's no small thing. And then we go and change our service time and create this class hour with the idea that we would spend even more of those precious hours here at church. It's a rather audacious thing to do. Uh, now, to be fair, this is hopefully not catching anybody off guard. We've been talking about this for, for quite a while and the idea itself of, of kind of mixing it up and, and changing the rhythm was born out of a sense, a collective sense in our, in our church that, that our, our structure on Sunday morning could do a much better job creating space for building relationships and going deeper in discipleship. Uh, it's become all too easy in our day and age for church just to, to become this event that we attend. We come and then we go rather than a family that we spend time with together in the Lord. And so we pitched this idea last spring, and it was received with pretty overwhelming, uh, overwhelming support. Not everybody is necessarily excited about changing things up, and that's okay. That's okay. But this was, this was a collective move as a church. But it's one thing to like an idea. Starting today, we now have to live with that idea right? And, and, and that's, change is different. You know, for, for those who attended the first service, coming 30 minutes sooner uh, means getting up 30 minutes sooner, and that's no small thing, especially if your family's anything like my family, which means we are not morning people. Uh, that is not how we roll. Uh, or for all of us here in the second service, staying 15 minutes longer to complete the service, that, that pushes into that lunch hour a little bit. I mean, some of y'all are going to get hangry before we're done here this morning. And then, of course, to spend an entire extra hour here in between those two services, that's no, no small commitment, especially if you're serving on our worship team or our tech team or our hospitality, which means you're here for the entire morning. And so, the question I want to help us think about this morning is simply this. Is this time well spent? Of all of the things that you could do with an hour, 
on Sunday morning, sleeping in, going for a, a bike ride, mowing the lawn, watching sports, spending time with your family. Of all the things you can do is spending an extra hour at church, whether you're teaching or serving or participating in a class, is that time well spent? And of course, at the end of the day, the way that we answer that question will very much be a matter of perspective. Depending on where you stand and how you look at it, the same activity can look like a horrible waste or heartfelt worship. And, and that's the reason I want to look at this short story in Matthew's gospel this morning in chapter 26. So go ahead and, and look there with me. Matthew 26, the story that we're looking at takes place in the final days of Jesus. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, he says this to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus is going to the cross. That's the context of this story. And, and it's something that he has already foretold three times in Matthew's gospel. He knows this is about to happen. Moreover, the, the, the impending crucifixion of Jesus, in many ways, it, it hangs over this entire section like this looming shadow. Christ is about to be crucified. He predicts it in verses 1 to 2. In verses 3 to 5, the, the chief priests and the elders plot his crucifixion. In, in our passage here, the, the woman with the alabaster jar prepares him for it. And then in verses 14 to 16, Judas is paid to make it happen. Everything in this section revolves, about the, uh, revolves around Christ and his crucifixion, which is no accident that it happened on Passover. You know, he mentions, you know, two days the Passover is coming and then I'll be delivered up. That's not a coincidence. It's this statement that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's what John the Baptist was proclaiming in John chapter 1 that we looked at recently. He is the true Passover lamb who willingly pours out his blood as our substitutionary sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 tells us that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And the marvel of the gospel is that Jesus did this not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. Because he loves us. He did it so that sinners, people like you and me, who in some way or another have all turned our backs on God and, and are under his just judgment so that we could be rescued from that and restored to a, an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. He gave everything, poured everything out for us to make us his own. The question then becomes... What will we do with that gift? What will we do? How will we respond to Jesus and his lavish grace? That's the question that the woman in our story anticipates and answers in a, in a remarkable, even an audacious way. 
Though, as we're going to see, not everybody shares her perspective. So look with me at, at verses 6 and 7. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So here we are just two days before the crucifixion, and, and Jesus and his friends, his disciples, they're all kind of hanging out, sharing a meal in the house of Simon the leper, a, a man with a, an infectious skin disease of some sort, though we can assume that he was probably healed of that by this point, and hopefully imagined by Jesus himself. Otherwise, it would have been unclean and unhealthy for the whole gang to kind of show up and hang out at his house. And so, but there they are, they're eating a meal, and a woman approaches Jesus. And we're not told in Matthew's gospel who she is, uh, but John tells us that this is Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus uh, that we meet in, in John's gospel. And, and uh, he tells the same story in chapter 12. And so Mary comes and she takes an alabaster flask, uh, which was itself expensive. It's a, a kind of a vessel made of, of a soft stone that kind of has a marble-like quality to it. It was imported from Egypt. She breaks off the top of it and as Jesus is reclining at table, which is apparently how they used to eat, I still do not understand what that would have looked like or been like. It seems to me like it would have been very uncomfortable, but that's how they ate in the first century. So they're reclining at table, and she, she pours out every drop of this expensive, this very expensive ointment, as Matthew calls it. Mark tells us that it was made of pure nard, which would have been imported from India and cost around 300 denarii, or basically a year's wages for the average laborer. So modern market figures somewhere maybe in the 30 to 50 grand category in this one little bottle poured out on Jesus. Now, we don't know if the family was like really wealthy uh, or if this was a, maybe a family heirloom, but Mary took all of it the whole thing, and poured it on the head of Jesus at this table. She did not spare a drop. It was a lavish gesture, audacious, extravagant. Too lavish, in fact, for the disciples who were standing there watching it happen. Verses 8 and 9. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were mad, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. The disciples were upset at what Mary did with this treasure. Now, the disciples loved Jesus. They've devoted their lives to following him. But to spend something so valuable on a single act of love and worship, that to them seemed like a waste. Like we could have, we could have sold that for a ton of money and been able to help the poor for a long time. It's a very pious response. And it was probably a genuine response for some of them, though we are told in John's gospel that Judas was particularly upset because he was the treasurer and he liked to help himself to the money bag on occasion. And that really would have padded it nicely. But depending on where you stand and how you look at it, 
the same activity can look like a horrible waste or heartfelt worship. One activity, very different perspectives on what's happening at this meal. Now, Jesus loves the poor. He commands his followers to serve the poor. But notice what he says to his disciples here. Basically, Mary was right. Mary was right. What she did was not a waste. It was worship. It was beautiful. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. And Jesus is not minimizing the value of caring for the poor here. He is magnifying the value of worshiping him. And, and, you know, in this story, after all, there's not a lot of time left for these kinds of personal acts of devotion to be given to him. He's about to be crucified, buried, then ascend and and be raised and, and ascend to his father in heaven. And so the opportunity to express such homage and devotion to him so generously in the flesh, that time is passing. And in Mary's eyes, Jesus was absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. There was nothing more worthy to spend her greatest treasure on than her Savior. So beautiful and so fitting was her extravagant offering that Jesus tells them in verse 13 that she's going to be remembered for it wherever the kingdom of God is proclaimed. And you already see that happening in the Gospels. When when you get to John's Gospel, which is written decades after this event occurred, listen to how Mary is described when we meet her in chapter 11, verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That's how Mary's known, as the one who who gave this this incredibly extravagant offering. And every time we read this story, we are remembering her and her love. We see this act portrayed. But even beyond this extravagant love that's displayed here. There's even a deeper significance to her action, Uh, one that, for all we know, she wasn't even aware of. Jesus explains in verse 12 that in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And that's a very strange comment to make at a dinner party, right? But what Jesus is saying is that this is not just an expression of love. It's a prophetic sign. This is preparing me for what's about to happen. For ancient Judaism, they didn't embalm bodies. Rather, they piled them up with spices after they were deceased. And so here, Jesus is being anointed in advance for what's about to happen to him. Which brings us back to where we started. He is preparing to be crucified. He is about to pour out his blood and not spare a drop to redeem people from their sins. Which raises again the question, how will we respond to him? He's not sparing anything for us. How will we 
respond to him? How valuable, how worthy is he? Is our time or our money or our obedience or our love or our service, is that a waste if we give it to Jesus? And we could be doing something else. Or is it worship? Is it worship? Now, a few important caveats before I further apply this passage to our new Sunday rhythm. I am not suggesting that extravagant devotion to Jesus is synonymous with having a class hour on Sunday mornings, okay? Just want to make that clear right away. Uh, Having a class hour does not make us a better church than other churches that might not. Uh, It's not even that uncommon. Uh, And there's no biblical mandate that thou must have a Sunday school time, right? And in fact, when you kind of look at the history of it, and Pastor Josh talked about this a little during the the 10 o'clock hour, uh, Sunday school is a relatively modern innovation in the life and history of the church, at least the form that we experience it in. And it's played all sorts of different roles in that relatively short history. So not making an equation there, nor am I suggesting that love for Jesus can be measured by Sunday school attendance, right? Just want to put that to rest right away. Maybe some of us grew up kind of thinking that, and so this whole thing is triggering some latent legalism in us, and we're having you know, a hard time adjusting, but that's, that's not attending Sunday school or attending a class on Sundays does not automatically make you a better Christian doesn't automatically build biblical community, and not attending a class doesn't mean that you love Jesus less or you hate his people, okay? So want to get that out there. Uh, Whenever we talk about particular shapes of ministries, it's always important that we don't make the mistake of reducing a biblical principle to a single practice, Right, so what that means, like you take a biblical principle like spending time in God's Word. That's something we're called to do. But then if we go and say, that means you have to do this particular Bible study or spend this many minutes every morning or whatever, that's a single practice, which may well be helpful, but is not the only way to spend time in God's Word, right? So similarly, devotion to the Lord, discipleship, Building community, those are all biblical principles that we must be devoted to and uphold and put into practice. But saying that and if you're not doing it this way, then you're not really doing it or you don't really care about it, that's a trap we want to avoid falling into. Okay? Now, having said all of that, it's still a good idea to ask ourselves is this thing we're doing, is this going to be time well spent? Is, is devoting an extra hour on Sunday morning to spending time together in God's Word in a smaller, uh, more relational, interactive context than what we do in our gathered worship, worship, which is to come together as one body under the proclamation of God's Word and, and lifting our hearts in corporate praise to Him, Asking ourselves, is that extra hour a waste or is it worship? That's an important question to ask. Because depending on where you stand and how you look at it, the same activity can look like a horrible waste or heartfelt worship. 
And, and so we, we need to wrestle with that. And, and our conviction, our hope, our, our prayer is that done properly, that this whole new thing that we're doing is an opportunity for worship. That's our goal. And we believe that Jesus is infinitely worthy of it. But seeing this as worship and not as waste, uh, that requires us to remember what Sunday morning is for, what it's actually for, and it may require us to unlearn some habits or priorities that we might have picked up over the years. Uh, There are two specific trouble spots that have a tendency to kind of either skew our perspective of what Sunday is about or even to spoil our experience of it. And I think they're worth uh, spending a few minutes to think about together uh, as we evaluate this whole new thing that we're doing uh, with this class hour. And the two things I have in mind in particular are when consumerism, uh, when we put consumerism in front of community, and when we focus on information without transformation. Consumerism without community or, or above community and, and focusing on information without transformation. And so the first one to think about is, is this emphasis on community, not consumerism. So at its heart, gathering together on the Lord's day is about community and discipleship and ultimately about worship. That, that's what it's for. It's to make much of God together as a family united in Christ and being transformed by Him, growing in Christ's likeness, being changed by the Spirit as we surrender to God's Word. And as that happens in us, that makes us a witness to the non-believing world around us. That's what Sunday morning is ultimately for. Consumerism is what happens when church becomes all about me, my interests, my desires, my preferences, my goals, whether those are spiritual or or simply practical. So our value for church, or you might say our, our customer satisfaction, is measured by how beneficial we find the experience to be personally. Right? And so as a, result, as, a, as a result, church becomes transactional pretty quickly. Like I, I attend an event in order to get something rather than being with my family. It, it changes the way we think about it, the way we experience it. We read the website or the ministry brochure like a menu trying to figure out what to order because there's some sort of religious uh, or, or spiritual good and service that I'm hoping to gain and then go home with. We attend gathered worship as a chance to express myself to God rather than to delight in His glory together with His people. And so the way that I answer the question, is this time well spent, is by answering another question, what's in it for me? That's how consumerism works. Right? And, and to be fair, the reason that so many people today in the West think about church in those categories is because they've been trained to think about church in those categories. This, this whole mindset is, is in many ways the result of a, of a long history of, of the clergy-laity divide in Christendom mixed with a whole lot of the whole market-driven church growth movement that kind of turned 
church members into customers and consumers and churches into marketing machines trying to meet needs and, and sneak a little Jesus in there with it, right? So in some ways, we're reaping what, we're, what we've sown in the West. But community must displace consumerism if we are going to think about church in biblical categories. It must displace that consumerism. The church is an intrinsically corporate reality. There is no way to understand or define or experience it that doesn't involve more than just me, right? It's, it's, it is intrinsically community. In fact, the Hebrew and Greek words behind the word that we have for church mean congregation, assembly, gathering. It's a corporate thing. In the same way, discipleship is an intrinsically corporate reality, which doesn't mean, you know, following Jesus, that doesn't mean that it, it, you know, I don't have some sort of individual responsibility. God calls us as, you know, individual persons to follow him. But as, as Jared Wilson reminds us, discipleship is more about walking alongside other disciples than it is just improving one's own stride, right? We need each other. We grow together in community. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is, doing, uh, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the heart of this schedule change, as disruptive as it might feel to what we're used to or, or what we have valued, the heart of it is a desire to embrace our family bond in Christ. The Lord has already made us family. Do we see ourselves that way? Do we act that way? And an extra hour doesn't automatically accomplish any of that. Let's be clear. But it does create space for those kinds of things to be able to grow and be nurtured. And when we look at it from that perspective, community over consumerism that looks like time well spent. Right? That, that's the first trouble spot, consumerism. The second one that we may need to rethink is, is focusing on information without transformation. Information without transformation. Some of us may look at a class hour and think, you know what, I honestly don't need any more content in my life. Like, I already listened to four podcasts and I follow three blogs, and I'm in two Bible studies and a prayer group, and I've got, you know, my own reading plan. I listen to the sermon on Sundays. I'm reading a couple of books. I really don't need more content to think about or learn, right? And if that's you, then you're probably right. You, you, you don't need any more content. You might need to scale it back a little bit, right, so you can actually think about what you're learning. But that's not our goal, more content is not our goal. Our vision for the class hour is not just to, uh, it's not at all to listen to another lecture for 45 minutes or, or to just learn more information. We want it to be interactive, relational, anchored in God's word 
as we strive together to understand it and put it into practice. This is, again, what Josh talked about uh, during the 10 o'clock hour as we kind of introduced this whole thing. We want to grow in grace and in godliness, not just information. We have a tendency in the West to kind of equate Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity or to equate doctrinal knowledge with godliness. Now, you cannot have maturity or godliness without knowledge. But knowledge itself does not automatically produce either of those things. There is a difference between information and transformation or sanctification, whatever you want to call it. We need that information. We need knowledge, true knowledge of God, but the goal is that that would produce transformation, a changed life to look more and more like God. And that happens best in community, not just in my car listening to a podcast or something like that. And, and of course, that's not just a Sunday morning thing, right? None of this is just a Sunday morning thing. But Sunday morning ought to be productive to that end. And so if we can create a space where people are, are coming together around God's word in a relational, interactive context for the sake of discipleship and community and worship, it seems to me like that's time well spent. I get excited when I think about that. Even if you're not particularly interested in the topic of the class, right? So our goal is to provide a variety of different kinds of classes to help people connect and wherever they're at to be able to take their next step with Jesus. So uh, we envision classes that are going to be more evangelistic, helping a non-believer understand the gospel and believe it, classes that are going to help establish young believers, uh, to equip growing believers, and, and that's going to touch on a number of different categories, Bible and, and doctrine and, and uh, culture and spiritual disciplines and life situations and so on. Not to mention, of course, what's happening with children and students during that class hour where we are able to ground them more deeply in the gospel and, and the whole overarching story of Scripture and how that is lived out. So hopefully you had a chance to join us down the hall before this service and learn a little bit more about that. If you missed that, you can find out information on uh, the Church Center app or on our, on our website. But, but okay, so say that... that what if none of the topics are actually even that interesting to me? Do, if I were to go, would that still be time well spent? Well, if we're going to place community over consumerism and transformation over information, then I kind of think the answer is still yes. That's still a healthy investment of time for the sake of growing in Jesus together with his family. Uh, our, our prayer is that we would want to be involved in this, not just because I have a personal interest in a particular topic, but because I want to be with my people, and I want to grow together in Christ with them. We need one another, and this is a chance for discipleship and community to happen. So how do we respond to the one who has given everything to us. How worthy is he? I mean, that's, 
That's a question we answer with all of life, not just one hour. But it's a, it's a question worth asking. You know, while we yet wait to be able to feast with Him, and, and while we may not have an alabaster jar to pour over Him, we do have our time. We do have our relationships. We have our service. We have our love. And we believe that Jesus is worthy of those things. And, and if our heart is to treasure Him, if that's our heart, and if our aim is to build community and make disciples and grow in spiritual maturity, and if our actions actually nurture those things, then I do not believe that we'll be wasting anybody's time with this new rhythm, but that rather the thing we're embarking on will be an opportunity for heartfelt worship of which our Lord is infinitely worthy. That's our prayer. And so I invite you to pray with me to that end, that God would do that among us together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, there is absolutely no way that we can respond appropriately to the, the just unimaginable worthiness and glory of you. Uh, nothing we do measures up. Everything we offer you falls pitifully short, and yet you invite our worship, you invite our lives, and your son sanctifies it with his blood, so we give it to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, be at work in us to give our lives, our time, uh, our money, our service, everything we have belongs to you. May we offer it to you in worship, and may we grow as a community of faith, going deeper together in your word and growing in your character as a church family, in relationship with one another, that we would be a sweet aroma to you and to the world around us. Lord, use us for your purposes, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.